This is your word-by-word conversations with writer's host, Gil Manser, welcoming everyone to a special 10-year retrospective broadcast on North Bay Public Media KRCB-FM. Word by Word was originally hosted by Jordan Rosenfeld, and when I took the reins in May 2007, I shifted emphasis to the word writers in the tagline. This allows me to include writers of many kinds, including screenwriters, playwrights, journalists, biographers, writing contest winners, and graphic novelists. So my very first show was broadcast in June 2007, and using the theme of literary landscapes, it featured local novelists and creative writing teachers Greg Saris and Jean Hegland. I want to welcome both of my wonderful guests here tonight to Word by Word, KRCB's opportunity to talk with real authors. We have two in the studio tonight. We have Greg Saris and we have Jean Hagelin, and we'll get to know a little bit more about each of those. Now, Greg, I understand you were really you were raised in the Santa Rosa area. Is that right? Went to school here? That's right, Gil. I didn't leave Santa Rosa until I was 20 years old. Uh-huh. And... Tell us a little bit about your school experience. Is it the traditional person who becomes a writer? No, I was most unlikely to succeed. I didn't read a book until the 11th grade in basic English, and uh, the first book uh, novel I read was The Old Man and the Sea, and I remember feeling sorry for the fish, which, of course, were not very auspicious begin- inauspicious beginnings for a writer. And what made you d- decide that you could write? Um, well, I-, I was going to be rich and be a businessman, and uh, pull myself up by the bootstraps, you know, the Horatio Alger um, uh, cliché. And uh, I found that studying was very lonely. It kept me from the kids, from my large families, uh, took me out of the pool halls on Lower 4th Street. And uh, I found that reading stories became company for me. It was much like hearing the old people talk on the front porch, and suddenly books became company. So it while... On my way to become uh, Horatio Alger, I fell in love with books because I was so lonesome. They saved me from uh, becoming a businessman, among other things. Well, other than becoming a businessman, what made you put pen to paper? Um, I loved hearing the stories, and I think I loved reading, and I had an idea I wanted to write. And I also had a sense, particularly here in Sonoma County, that the stories I knew— were not getting told and would not unless I told them. Mm-hmm. Now, for those uh, listeners who don't really know a little bit about about your background, you were living in a multi-ethnic part of town, what we would call, I guess, a lower socioeconomic level. Yeah. I Well, I was adopted. I, my father is American Indian and Filipino, and my mother was white, and I was a so-called illegitimate child of the 50s. And I was adopted by a middle-class family, but ended up m- spending most of my time or much of my early teen years in South Park, mm-hmm. uh, around uh, Grand Avenue, right behind, behind the fairgrounds, where much of my family is today. And um, I, w- I saw so much that wasn't anywhere in the literature that I was reading. And you decided, really, basically, you needed to tell your, the stories you were hearing. Yeah, and it was a constant battle, Gil. I remember writing about Indian people while I was in the writing program, uh, the Stegner program at Stanford, and the professor um, said, "Who are these people? I, I, I these aren't Indians. I don't. I don't know that there's Indians like this. Of course, they weren't on uh, Appaloosa horses, and they weren't wearing feathers. They were people in and about, mixed bloods uh, in a small town, ninety miles north of Stanford. But they weren't real for him. And he said, I'd never be able to publish the stories, which 
um, scared me. I did what a lot of failed writers do. I became a professor. Now, was Stanford's uh, mascot the Indian at that time still? They, they, yeah, yes. Well, they were in the pro- process of changing it to the cardinal. The cardinal, which is a non just a another color. animal, yeah. a bird. Is it? No, it's not. It's not the bird. I it's hear. supposed to be the color, but Isn't that they odd? come out on the field with the cardinal. Right. They used to have the Indian, you know, ride out on the horse, but. Now, Gene, you, on the other hand, uh, had uh, literaryness and writing in your blood, I think, from both your parents. Am I right? Well, uh, my father taught college English, mm-hmm. and my mother did, too, for a time, and then was the high school librarian when I was growing up. So so you had books and writing all around you. Right. I had books and writing all around. And I discovered writing. I discovered books really passionately when I was 10, and Steinbeck was my first guy, too. Huh. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. what was your, the first? You know, I think it, I was trying to remember. It wasn't. Old Man in the Sea, probably Cannery Row or something. But um, I just found myself on the S shelf of the public library, and there was Steinbeck, and um, and those stories just they took me away. They just took you away. Yeah. Now you ended up at the JC, is that right? Was there a writing program there? Yeah, as well? I ended up at the JC, and um, in fact, um, my first major relationship turned out to be with a professor, and again, an English professor, and I I began to really read and read and love reading all the more, um, and then, uh, you know, got sidetracked for a few years, um, but uh, came back to it, and while I was away f- from Santa Rosa, I left Santa Rosa when I was 20 and didn't come back till I was after 50 and 30 years, but uh, the stories and what I grew up with and the people um, never left me. It, it was they are what inspires me. Um, uh, I, I'm a product, uh, a slave, you might say, Gil, of place, of mm-hmm. this place mm-hmm. called this Sonoma place. County. The, the the landscape bubbles stories for me everywhere. I mean, where Cottingtown was, I used to race horses uh, through the prune orchards there. Uh, on Santa Rosa Creek, I know where uh, a great aunt of mine had been murdered by, uh, uh, you know, and everywhere there's stories. Then the old stories, the ancient stories, the landscape is a text for me. Interesting. Now, Gene, you kind of came to this place, what, about 84, as I remember, is mm-hmm. that right? Mm-hmm. And began to start teaching at SRJC. At the junior college. And, yeah. and you were teaching literature, creative writing there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, you had grown up in the Northwest in kind of on the border between Oregon and Washington? I grew right? up in eastern Washington, right. the border between... <clears throat> excuse me, Oregon and or Washington and Idaho. And Idaho. Oh. And um, so coming down here was like moving to an entirely different world. The landscape was was different. The smells were different. The seasons were different. And um, it had a profound effect on me from the very beginning because I, I think that um, landscape and place is just, sort of crucial to who people turn out to be and what the stories are. And so moving someplace else made, it was sort of like starting over. It was. Yeah. Unlike Greg, who had triggers really from the landscape and the history that was there already, you had to kind of create your own. I had to learn about where I was and, you know, just sort of stumbling around and trying to find the stories and trying to understand the seasons and who had lived in this land before and um, what, you know what grape growing was like, and what acorn eating was like, and I had I had to sort of create my own history in this place. Yeah. Now, Greg, you, of course, you talk about acorn eating actually in several of your books, and which are really combinations of I guess we could call short stories originally. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then uh, it's odd that there are similar themes between both of you with such a different experience. 
you, you, you well, it's the same place, right? <laughs> now, are the, the places that you write about, Gene? Are they real? I'm thinking specifically of uh, things which you could identify, like the the big circle redwood tree, which is so important in Into the Forest. In Into the Forest, it might as well be real. <laughs> <laughs> A decade later, it is interesting to note that Greg's dream of becoming a successful businessman has come true in his role as chairman of the Federated Indians of Grayton Rancheria, which operates the Grayton Casino just a few blocks from our KRCB studio. Similarly, Jean Hagelin's aspirations have come true with her novel Into the Forest, becoming a movie co-starring Ellen Page and Evan Rachel Wood. As a writer myself, I want Word by Word to help other writers learn about their craft and profession. This is why the team of Michael Larson and Elizabeth Bomada, co-owners of Northern California's oldest literary agency, were early guests. All writers sort of start in the same place. They develop as writers and they develop as authors. Um, this is an agent in New York, Don Moss, who says that it takes five books to build an audience for your work. So it's important that writers start with a long view. Uh, you have short-term goals and long-term goals. Um, you want to think about what you want to write and uh, who you want to write it for and how much money you want to earn as a writer. And think of a career not as one book, but uh, 10 or 20, each better than the last. Uh, one of the reasons why now is the best time ever to be a writer is that there are more models than ever for writers to follow. You don't have to figure out how to write a mystery. Just read enough of them and you'll know. And also, there's also authors. I mean, Sue Grafton, for example, working her way through the alphabet. Uh, she didn't have a hardcover bestseller until H is for Homicide. And... Uh, that's the eighth book in the series, and by that time, uh, four of her first seven novels were never published. Um, and uh, it just it, she'd been writing for 28 years. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, it takes a while. So you have to have the short view as well as the long view. So what advice? I guess we're talking really about three different kinds of, of people in our audience. One would be the wannabe writers who've never done anything before. Two would be those who keep have been trying for years and getting a stack of rejection slips uh, and those who may have not you know like Sue Grafton who have not hit it in big time success do they do you tell them the same things or do they need different kinds of information the message is the same how they listen is different and how um, do you mean well one Michael we get phone calls all the time Hi, Michael, I have this great book that's going to change the world. Okay, what do you, how you, will you promote it? The a novice will say, oh, the publisher's going to do that for me, isn't he? So we disabuse them of that notion, and Michael says, no, you have to do the promoting. He says, oh, well, then I'll just go on Oprah. <laughs> and I'll just talk as, as much as do anything the publisher wants. So then you say, no, you're the one who has to put together a campaign, a plan, to go around the country and give talks. I'll be happy to do that. But now the publisher wants to know, have you done it? How many talks have you given? Many authors say, oh, I'll just give you know, one, a year, one a month for the rest of my life. And then you ask them, how many talks have they given? Right. None. So we suggest they spend a year starting out by giving free talks, even to Rotary or clubs that need them, or Unity Churches, developing not, the, not only the craft of speaking, but also getting building an audience. There are many people who don't want to hear that. That's bad news. They want instant gratification. Now, is someone, in your experience, is someone who is a good writer, a marketable writer, also necessarily a good presenter or speaker? No, not, not necessarily. Uh, I think there's a couple of things we 
distinctions we should make. First of all, uh, there's a significant difference between fiction and nonfiction. Okay. Uh, the ideal circumstance is uh, that a nonfiction author is writing a book that the author can get paid to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so they're familiar with the subject? Is that it? Well, there's a kind of circularity to that. Um, Books are a great way to get talks. They're great door openers. Mm -hmm. But talks are a great way to develop books. The books I've written on proposals and agents and promotion are all great talks that we, we gave. Um, so fiction, nonfiction, not as much promotional ammunition is expected by big houses for, for novels. Or even for some kinds of uh, nonfiction books, like an A to Z reference book. Right. It depends on the nature of the book one is writing. Um, and so a how-to how book, we would need to be knowledgeable in that field? Uh, if it lends itself to talks. And even if it does, I mean, this... A lot of books, for example, like, um, well, spirituality might be one of the kinds of books that could be a problem to get paid to speak about. At the same time, if one is writing about spirituality, there are four ready-made networks around the country that you can talk to. Uh, uh, Unity churches, Church of Religious Science, Unitarian churches, I think Lutheran churches as well. Mm -hmm. um, and they all give authors honorariums and they all sell books, so they're used to that process. But that won't justify, yeah, it, that won't make a business model. Right. You know, writers who want to speak have to have a business model that justifies their time and expenses. Sure. So and that's not true for all kinds of uh, uh, nonfiction, and certainly not for fiction. Now, I remember when, and I've known both of you for years now, and I remember that you kind of had divided and conquered the uh, different genres that you worked with. And Elizabeth, you're focusing primarily on what you're calling uh, narrative nonfiction. Well, I handle all of the fiction, of course, but yes, I do all of the narrative nonfiction. And what that means is nonfiction that depends on the telling, that depends on the story within, that um, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, that's certainly it's basic. It's not prescriptive. Right. But it's a not story. Not prescriptive. Right. Prescriptive it's, is how-to. Okay. Or a business Now, would book, Michael handle those? And he handles all okay. of those. Can you give us uh, some examples off the top of your head of either ones that you've handled or the, that people would know from you know, a broader base. Well, I th our most successful author, um, nonfiction author, is a guy named Jay Conrad Levinson. Not a name that people usually know, but the phrase guerrilla marketing is something they do know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first, uh, we've been working with Jay since 1977, and the, the first book we sold for him was a book uh, that uh, was about um, earning money without a job. Mm -hmm. The whole notion of being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, he self-published it actually, and that's that was I was going to say. I think I've got a copy of that. On oh the yeah, show. Well, yeah, a collector's item. Yeah, yeah with the, the big format one. Uh, well, yes. um, there was one that was, uh, had a green cover on it. Yes. In any case, there was a story about him in the business section on the green sheet, and it was green at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I saw it, and I called him up, and I sold the book for him. And then he wanted to write a book about marketing. He was teaching at UC Berkeley, mm -hmm. um, and uh, he wanted to call it uh, "Secrets of Making Big Profits from Your Small Business," which was an okay oh. title, but that makes you, you sleep. <laughs> Buried in the proposal was the phrase guerrilla marketing. And as soon as I saw that, I knew that had to be the title. Right. And it's really become um, generic. It's, uh, uh, there's all kinds of guerrilla dating now. There's all kinds of books. That's I think if you looked on Wikipedia, guerrilla. you'd find lots of guerrillas. So, exactly. Right? exactly. And uh, amazingly enough, I mean, there's more than 40 books in the series now. Word by Word has a good reputation among publicists from the top publishing houses. As a result, I'm able to limit my monthly conversations to writers whose books I really want to read and talk about. Based upon feedback from my guest, Word by Word's hour-long format seems to be rare for radio shows. They are also appreciative that I have actually read and annotated their books, making notations of things to talk about, and doing some background research on the book's characters and geographical and historical settings. The conversational approach has led, on several occasions, to having a simple question open a door into the guest's past and how this has influenced their writing. Here is a great example. 
Tonight we will be talking about a book set in an island paradise, complete with a shipwrecked hero, a beautiful native girl, tropical sunsets, a blue lagoon, sunshine, sex, and a baby. The book is called The Pirate's Daughter, and its author, Margaret Cesare Thompson, was 19 years old when she left Jamaica to study in the United States. Now she is a successful novelist and associate professor of English at Wellesley. We will soon be delving into the pages of The Pirate's Daughter, which chronicles the consequences of a fictional affair between the Hollywood film star Errol Flynn and an impetuous Jamaican girl named Ida. But Margaret Cesare Thompson's first novel, The True History of Paradise, was published in 1999, and it focused on a heroine desperately fleeing the West Indies. Margaret, in interviews you have made references to your own history and how the violence in your homeland during the 70s and 80s directly affected you and your family. So before we begin talking about Errol and Ida and their daughter May, tell me a little bit about your own self. Well, I grew up in Jamaica, as you said, um, and um, I like the uh, character in, in the novel, The Pirate's Daughter, May Flynn. I'm of that generation that saw the country go from being a British colony mm-hmm. to an independent nation. Right. I remember being a little girl when um, I saw the national flag go up for the first time. Um, so there was all this sort of hope and um, excitement about Jamaica becoming a country right. on its own, um, while also growing up with um, the legacy of a, a British colonial education, and then really seeing a, a great amount of change, a lot of it not good change, um, in the 19, late 1970s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. When um, So when the, did you leave uh, Jamaica? I left... I left when I was 19 to go to college, but right. I was still, it was still my homeland. I'd gotcha. go back and gotcha. forth. Right. Um, I didn't become a resident of the United States till uh, the mid-1980s. Oh, uh-huh. So um, around 79, It was quite 80, a term, tumultuous time in Jamaica. It was. It was um, a very hard time. And, Down um, through three or four governments by then. Three or four governments, three or four states of emergency. Right. right. And um, it's a time that I... I, I really wanted to talk about a lot in my in my first book, mm-hmm. The True History of mm-hmm. Paradise. And so how, what uh, you said it affected your family. Is there anything you want to share about that uh, directly? I think there probably wasn't any family in Jamaica in that time that wasn't affected ah. um, in some way or another. Um, it was really a time, too, where y- you also even saw the architecture change. Um, we grew up as young children with these huge open verandas where everyone sat around and talked. And I always have all these verandas and um, veranda talk Very in my novels. Very feeling, yes. right, yes. And then by the time I was a teenager, everyone was um, grilling those verandas right. in with those iron grills. So you're grills. behind bars and yeah, grills. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's also changed the culture. There isn't that openness anymore. Right. Um, I don't know if I'd have been the same kind of writer if I'd grown up without those open verandas because mm-hmm. that's when I used to secretly listen to all the grown-ups' conversations. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> And, um, Open windows and right. before, no air conditioning noises to drown them out. Right. Yeah. And so it, it got to be a, a, a sort of state where the violence was so bad. There, was, there, wasn't, no, there wasn't anyone who didn't know someone mm-hmm. who hadn't been a victim of violence. It went across all the classes. I, I mean, I think the poor working class people had the worst time of it right. in the, in the um, in the slums of Kingston, like Trenchtown, um, you know, all, 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 all those towns in those groups that Bob Marley talks about sure, in his music sure. so well. But, um, you know, we, we did have um, a violent attack in, in, our, in my own family. Mm. Um, and, you know, and it, and it, was, it was upsetting. Um, you say that so politely. <laughs> upsetting. It was very upsetting. Right. Traumatic. Yes, I would think. <laughs> it was traumatic. Um, and 
as I said, a lot of a lot of people experience that. In a way, what was um, more upsetting to me was the the way people were almost beginning to accept the brutality mm-hmm. that was going on. You, it, it, people talked about, began to talk about it in in a way that was a little bit callous. So and so got um, chopped up oh dear. the other day. Oh dear. You know that yes. kind of yeah. thing. Oh, but and then we'll and, go on and talk about what kind of coffee to make, right? Well. In a way, you know, yeah. it was just it it it, be, it began to be. It, I, I thought that the violence was unacceptable, um, especially the violence toward women, mm-hmm. and so that was one of the things I really wanted to talk about in that first book, and, right. and I did. Right, I haven't a chance to read that, so I have to pick that up somewhere. It's coming back in in print next oh, good. year. Good, yeah, It'd be interesting. Now you've gotten a lot of attention for the Pirate's Daughter. I think you know. Is it? Beca- I think obviously it's because of the tie-in to this, you know, this swashbuckling hero from Maybe. Hollywood. Yeah, the yes. Errol Flynn character who was larger than life in reality. Yes. yes. <laughs> now, the other thing about Jamaica, and I have not visited there, but I have good friends who you know, keep going back and who love it and take long vacations, and they say that they, there's at least four different cultures kind of side by side. You know, there's the tourists who mm-hmm. go to Ocho Rios mm-hmm. or wherever they're right. going to go and kind of sit there. And, then they're, and, and as, as this, uh, my friend has been telling me, over the years, the separation, the, the guards with the, you know, with the guns now are patrolling the private sections of the beach and such, which did not be, you know, the case in the 70s when she started going. Mm-hmm. And um, as you drive through, the, the uh, there's such a tremendous amount of poverty, very visible in parts. And then there's the old, I guess, colonial, you know, British style, you know, Homes. lifestyle still going on. Mm-hmm. And then a very um, um, active middle class, too. Yes. And you went, as I remember reading somewhere, uh, to private schools, is that correct? Or, or you were a boarding school at one time? And at a, one time. I was at uh, semi-public schools. Now, um, was this one it was British? Well, all the schools, all the major high schools in Jamaica were once British, mm-hmm. um, uh, run by, by uh, the sort of British colonial education. Yeah, I had my brother-in-law as one of those, a uh, uh, headmaster of a British school that also took borders, one of the only ones in the country left, right. and got his OBE because he was so adamant that the local people could, you know, come and participate in the education as well as people from, you know, the tr- from, were, who were posted around the world. Right, right, right. And then they became more and more Jamaicanized in, mm-hmm. the, in the 40s and the 50s. Right. Um, very good educa- educational system, actually. Um, and But then for one year, I was sent to, my sister and I were sent to a Catholic boarding school, a mm-hmm. private Catholic mm-hmm. boarding school in the country. And um, I was actually expelled from that school. That sounds similar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anybody I know in, in, a, in a book I've just read, huh? Well, did, you, uh, did you prefer poetry and uh, what was the other things you really liked? Uh, uh, horses. Horses, yes, <laughs> right. Horseback riding. <laughs> I liked wandering the, con- the countryside, actually. Uh-huh. That's, uh-huh. What, that's what got me into trouble. As a psychological educator, books written for young audiences are of particular interest. I enjoy setting up a show with guests who write for different ages, like Megan McDonald and Terry Sloat. Today, I'm very pleased to have in my studio two children's book authors. Terry Sloat says that she grew up on a quiet, gentle home as an only child. And uh, Megan McDonald says sometimes she thinks she is Judy Moody. And uh, since that's the way they start off both of their introductions, those of you who know who Judy Moody is and who know the beautifully illustrated works by Terry Sloat um, know they need no introduction. But we'll give you a little bit. So why don't you tell each other about each other? Who would like to go first? 
They oh, can... we both pointed to each other. <laughs> <laughs> How about oh, that? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I'm Megan. I'm the author of the Judy Moody books and also Judy's little brother, Stink. Stink. And um, Judy is about eight years old, and you can tell just from her name that she has many, many different kinds of moods. And um, I think one of the wonderful things about Judy is that readers, young and old, recognize themselves in her. So creating the character of Judy Moody was a way for me to just simply say, we all have moods, good and bad, and um, here's what it's like to, you know, show a lot of those many moods. All right. Terry. Um, I now, am talk, talk to Megan because you're telling her <laughs> oh, all to about Megan. It. Yes. <laughs> well, I've known Megan for a long time, so she knows all actually, about you. Oh, okay. Yes, uh, she probably knows too much about me because <laughs> Megan and I used to be in the same critique group, so we have read uh-huh. each other's manuscripts and given each other feedback on our books. But I live in Sebastopol, not mm-hmm. too far from Megan, and not and too far from me, as a matter of fact. That's right, right, and actually taught your kids in that's school, true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> which probably says something about my age. But we have three children, and we live on a a farm home in Sebastopol. Most of my books are actually about things that have happened to me. I have a series of books that are about Farmer Brown, which is my husband. Mm -hmm. What's the the secret is out? uh, He has a lot of secrets, but believe me, when I went to Guam, the kids were more excited to see him than me because they could meet the real Farmer Brown. (laughs) Um, My last book was called I'm a Duck, and it's a feel-good book because – in Rohnert Park, a duck walked by and said, quit worrying about being famous. If you were a duck, everybody will look at you as soon as you turn around. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I'm a Duck came from. Well, not only did uh, you make the duck famous, but you made the location famous because at the opening of your book that I have marked here and I'll turn to, it says, uh, to the happy Mallard and his family at the Rohnert Park Doubletree Hotel. <laughs> and it's, you know... <laughs> It's just funny to keep reading, you know, locations that appear in the books that, uh, you know, people that are somehow they're identified with this place. But I've never seen something quite as blatant as that. So, Well, that duck actually cheered me up. Um, believe it or not, authors have bad book signings. And I had come back from <clears throat> a poorly attended book signing. Oh, yes. <laughs> and he just strutted his stuff in front of me and said, yep, I'm a duck. Well, we're going to talk about I'm a Duck a little bit later. You didn't mention your other child, though. You had talked to, you know, about your, you know, your wonderful character, Judy Moody, but you meant we have another daughter named Julie the American Girl. Now, those of you who don't know this, you have to be the right age or have a, you know, a child or grandchild the right age. The American Girl dolls are a phenomenon. Yes. Uh, they're not inexpensive. They are a collector's item originally. I think everyone I first saw was kept in its box, you know, because it was going to Go up in value, sure. but but recently it's uh, come to be the one that the, you carry around with you everywhere you go if you're that age, about you know the the tween age, and um, they are part of the family. Yes, and each exactly. of them represents a different decade or so in the history of America. And the one that we're talking about, Julie, is the 1970s American Girl. Yes, it was quite a shock to be asked. I was invited by American Girl to write the books in their newest historical series. And when they first called, I was thinking, well, I live on the West Coast. It's probably going to be like 1850s gold rush in California (laughs) or something. And then when they said the 1970s, I said, that's not history. That's my childhood. So um, that was quite funny. But it was really fun to go back to the 70s and sort of revisit it as a researcher and um, reading about and learning about things like Watergate, you know, not being a child. 
um, was really interesting. And I set the books in San Francisco. So oh, you had that choice. There, yeah, everything. The only thing American Girl really asked was that um, they wanted to create a girl from the 1970s. That was it. That's very everything, interesting. Because yeah, I so, saw the show on Oprah last week mm-hmm. where she went and visited the American Girl store and I guess factory, which are all in Illinois or someplace. They're in Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin, yeah. all right. And um, the impression I got was that everything that was researched and put in the books came from their little people sitting, the little gnomes in the workshop back in Madison, Wisconsin. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, I think because she visited – it's very rare for anybody to sort of gain entry into their factory and into their offices. Mm-hmm. So I think because she visited there, they opened that up to the public to have a peek. But that's where, of course, the whole editorial department is. So you saw the editor showing um, various stages the book went through, right. my, my editor on the Julie books. And also a wonderful thing about American Girl is they have qualified full-time historians on staff. Who knew and how to find lava lamps, for example. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so the historian I worked with flew out to San Francisco and we literally – you know, spent days walking around the city and taking pictures of sites that we thought might work for the particular neighborhood where I was setting Julie's story. Or, for example, like maybe this particular school could be her elementary school that she would walk to. Mm-hmm. And um, in the Christmas book, she goes to have a fancy tea at the Fairmont Hotel. So uh, they go to Giardelli Square and Chinatown. I mean, lots of locations that you'll recognize from you know, being a local to San Francisco. But it's interesting. So you picked the the fact that she would be a child of divorce, recent divorce. Yes, that was – this is the most recent period in history they've chosen. Mm -hmm. And when I began researching the 70s – I mean, I knew some of this just from people in my own life, but I found out that the divorce rate in this country was at its absolute peak in the 1970s. And at least or over 50% of families were divorced. So That's, of course, changed statistically because now 50% of people are not married who are living together. Right, exactly. So it's a question of you know, how you measure that. If you break up if yes. you're not married, is that a divorce? Yes. It certainly is for the child. And it was the first time, I think, that divorce was really beginning to really be talked about. Mm-hmm. And kids who were going through it were looking for resources and books you know, to help them. At the time, um, custody joint custody laws were not in place yet, so that was all sort of being, um, you know, still thought out. And so in doing all the research, I thought, you know, this would really help accurately portray the 70s. And it also, it's a, you know, it works as well in fiction as a great device to, I mean, I have her in the first book having to move to a new neighborhood and right. leave her dad. And, and of course, where does friend. she go is, yes, is and then, the hate. Right? Yeah, she goes to the hate. And so I got her into sort of a colorful um, neighborhood where her mom has, you know, kind of a hippie sort of shop. And so, you know, I have to admit some of those are devices I use to frame fiction, but that a misnomer is that American Girl decides all of that when really they choose a writer and they choose the time period, but everything, including even the name of the girl and the character and her family and her world, are all up to me as the storyteller. Very, very interesting. So, Terry, you have a duck who came to you and told you to write a book. Where did you <laughs> yes. get your inspiration for your other titles? 
Well, this is the house that was tidy and neat is a temper tantrum book because I came <laughs> home from a conference to a house that was not tidy and neat. And Oh, no, never. <laughs> well, actually, yes. My family had a new puppy that they hadn't asked me about, and this was quite a few years ago, but <laughs> basically there was no concern about the mess in the house. And I wasn't playing soccer yet, so I didn't really swear well. And I came home, and all I could do was cry when I saw what a mess everything was. And when I sent the story out the first time, the editor sent it back, and she said, I think it sounds like you're a little bit angry. I don't think we can use this. So two years later, I took it out of the drawer and said, ooh, I think I was a little mad. <laughs> and I rewrote it so that at the end, the dad, um, the mom comes home, right. fixes, uh, she just puts herself in the chair and the dad fixes dinner because the mom's tired, which is the deal my husband and I have now that if I'm coming home late and I've been out, he has dinner waiting for me because he has a reputation to live up to now. <laughs> right, it's in the book. He does a great job of it, though. Now, you were not the illustrator for that one. I wasn't. R.W. Alley, Bob Alley, illustrated it. And I think he did me a huge favor because he set it in a Victorian setting because he didn't want it to be a women's lib book. And I said, well, that just proves men were doing that. Right, you know, <laughs> sure, a long life, time life ago. with father kind of thing. <laughs> right, exactly. So we presented the book together back east several times. And... You just do a knock-knock with knock-knock, who's there? And right. this, this is the mouse. And knock-knock, who's there? This is the cat. So it's a lot of fun to have a call and response with the book. But it was fun to present with Bob because he said his wife takes care of him. You have been listening to a special word-by-word conversations with writers retrospective look at the previous 10 years with host Gil Manser on North Bay Public Media KRCB-FM. In the first half hour, we have heard clips from shows featuring novelists and creative writing professors Greg Saris and Gene Heglin, co-owners of Northern California's oldest literary agency, Michael Larson and Elizabeth Pomata, best-selling Jamaica-born novelist Margaret Kazare Thompson, and Sebastopol children's authors and illustrators Megan McDonald and Terry Sloat. There's a whole lot more to come in the next half hour, so stay tuned to KRCB-FM Windsor Santa Rosa. On rare occasions, an author revisits word by word. This happened when the acclaimed best-selling novelist and Penn Faulkner and Ross McDonald Award winner T.C. Boyle with the release of each of his two novels set on the Channel Islands, When the Killing's Done and San Miguel. Here's a clip from the end of the first of those conversations, where T.C. jokingly thanks me for providing such a luxurious studio in a complete hour for him to talk and talk and talk. Well, I'll ask you um, about your show, uh you seem to be having a lot of fun with this, and it's great to have this much time to, to schmooze and, and read passages of the book. I hope all your listeners worship you properly. Well, it's interesting to have an hour-long show because you're doing the circuit. So you've got three minutes here, five minutes, mm-hmm. 15 minutes. Yes. Um, it's, much, it's a conversation that happens here. Of course. And you can do that in maybe 15, but you can't do that in three. And it's very relaxing, and I thank you. Uh, people can't see where we are right now, but I thank you for the pillows and the uh, down comforter. And the nice and the cup ladies of hot cocoa. That, are, that are that are carefully uh, <laughs> fanning you with the peacock feathers, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> this is KRCB. They they know it's a, a double wide trailer with pieces of foam stapled to the wall. Well, thank you again. It's been delightful. I hope everybody will pick up your latest book, When the Killing's Done. Take a trip to the Channel Islands off Santa Barbara. Meet some characters you will not soon forget. And. Uh, T.C. Boyle, thank you very much. It's my pleasure, Gil. Since Word by Word offers podcasts on krcb.org, the show is heard by audiences throughout the English-speaking world. This has given me the opportunity to interview people who live and write in other countries. 
One such show was with Irishman Owen Koffler, who wrote the immensely popular YA mystery series about a brilliant teenage master criminal named Artemis Fowl. Obviously born with a natural gift of gab, in this clip, Owen tells us about his childhood, his parents, and the year he and his wife lived in Saudi Arabia. If you can tell us just briefly a little bit about how you came to be a writer uh, at the age of 30, as I recall, and, uh, and why you created these wonderful, wonderful characters. Uh, I was a primary teacher or middle school, I suppose, over here for 15 years. And I used t- storytelling as a teaching method, uh, which I really enjoyed because you can, you can play the audience, as it were, if you see some kids falling asleep or fighting or pouring ink over each other. You can speed it up a little bit, or if you see you've got them all, you can slow it down and get in the information. And so for a long time I did that, and, and I saw it was a great teaching method. And, uh, and then I moved on to writing stories, which I would use uh, year after year to get across information about, I don't know, the Civil War or the pyramids or, or what, what have you. So that became part of your curriculum, your stories. I developed, yeah, I was develop- developing my own curriculum, which was, you know, under the umbrella of the Irish curriculum. I wasn't uh, breaking, I'm not, I'm not like a Robin Williams character right. uh, inventing a new curriculum. Standing on your desk. Yes, there was none of that really. But, uh, but I just found the books that I could get hold of for history especially didn't really teach much about local history uh, which I think is very important. Now tell us, and we'll talk about that, it's a good time to do this, a little bit about uh, Wexford and, and where we are in Ireland and kind of put it in time and place for those who need a map in their mind. Okay, well, if you imagine Wexford as uh, a rectangle, um, then uh, or Ireland as a rectangle, Wexford is on the southeast corner okay. of the rectangle. Um, it's called, we call it the sunny southeast. Well, that's what the tourist board calls. Right. I think uh, that's a bit hopeful. Um, it's a very historic town. It's where the Normans landed when they invaded uh, through England from France. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of old Norman castles and buildings. The Vikings also invaded. One of the castles you used to play in as a child, Absolutely. Right? This was, there's a Norman castle beside uh, where my parents live, and we would break into the castle and go to the top and uh, throw things off the top. Uh-huh. Not each other, I hasten to say, but usually action man dolls with right. parachutes that we had made. And uh, this was my first experience, I think, with airborne. Uh, objects. It was a great place to grow up um, with four brothers and some sunshine and we were let run riot in the cliffs and uh, seashore of Wexford Town. We came over, my family, with the Normans, mm-hmm. uh, the Colfers, but we were obviously the world's laziest Normans because when all the other Normans went to conquer Dublin, we said, no, it's okay, we'll just, just stay right we're here. fine here, there's a nice girl, I'm getting married, we're settling here. Well, my ancestors did the same thing on the Isle of Man, so, there you, go. you know, we picked up the local beautiful girls and and stayed. And stayed for a while and then went on. Yeah, so, so. so we're still there 800 years later. There, there aren't really any Colfers uh, outside Wexford. There's some in America now. I, mm-hmm. think there's a, I believe there's a Colfer history website. But mostly in Ireland we stayed at home and just became fishermen. Okay, so you're a young man growing up in, uh, right on the coast of Ireland. Yeah. And uh, loving it. And uh, your parents, tell us a little about that. My parents are very enlightened people. Um, my father... Uh, back in the 1970s and 80s, refused to hit children. He's a teacher. Ah. And uh, in those now, days... okay, it, this is important to understand yeah. the difference between the Irish and corporal punishment and use in the schools and, yeah. and in this country. Well, in the 1970s, uh, it was encouraged to give the kids the odd whack, and uh, teachers were well known for hammering kids, as we say, and, but my dad wouldn't do it. Spare the rod and spoil Absolutely, the time. Absolutely, yeah. And in, I think in the late 70s, early 80s, then it became... It was outlawed. 
or band outlawed is not, not really the right word, but it was a band. But for many years before that, my dad had uh, championed child-centered education mm-hmm. rather than didactic education. So uh, we had a, a library in our class, which was unusual. We had a museum in our class, hmm. which was unheard of. And we built a float for the St. Patrick's Day parade of a Viking longship, which people still talk about today. So, um, wow. so he was very, he was ahead of his time, really, as an educator. And my mother is a dramatist, an actress, a writer. She has a woman's group. Um, they put on plays. She has a radio show. So I, I grew up in a very artistic environment where we were encouraged to write stories. And uh, I didn't know that was, wasn't normal right. until I got to school. But you weren't an athletic child. Well, you can probably tell by looking at me. Well, no. I've actually heard you say that. No, before, I'm not. So, I was yes. terrible. I have no coordination uh, sports-wise. And so I would invent stories about people who had coordination right. and, uh, I suppose, live my sports dreams vicariously through them. The sad thing was, though, I was always the guy who had all the gear, the spotless gear on the side. Like, Come on, coach, ah, put me in, bench, coach, you put me in. Yeah. I don't know, bench warmer. All right. Never happened. And all my brothers are great footballers, but I, I missed out on that gene, unfortunately. Well, you obviously caught the creative one uh, with a with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. Now, you had you said you've been writing stories in in for your curriculum in your classroom, and then you dis- you traveled, didn't you? Go to teach somewhere else. Yeah, my wife and I, my wife Jackie, we wanted to buy a house, and uh, this was back in the uh, early nineties, and um, we didn't have the ten thousand pounds at that time that you needed for a deposit on the house. So we went to Saudi Arabia, where we heard that uh, the money was good and the price of cost of living was low, and we found out that that, that wasn't exactly true. So we both had to take night jobs. Ah. After about six months, we realized, well, if we'd taken night jobs at home, we could have done this. But we, we had a very interesting year there, and we got offered jobs in Italy then. By um, It was an American company we were wor- working for. Can we go back to Saudi Arabia a little bit? Yeah. I heard, I've heard you comment on one other interview that your wife had a difficult time, much more difficult time than you did because of the expectations from women were so different. It's terrible out there, and especially, I think, for... Um, well, not especially, but particularly per- perhaps for women who are used to being uh, liberated and free and equal and uh, to go out there and then suddenly be told, well, sorry, God says you can't drive. And, right. You know, it's just it, so in the Quran. Yeah, it's very difficult and for, for Jackie to accept that. and. So we stayed for a year. Luckily, there's a very strong Irish uh, contingent out there of expats. and ah. So we, we, we kind of hung around with them and we, we had a good time. And once you're inside their walls, you're fine. Everything is normal. But my wife has blonde hair. And so if even one strand of that blonde hair got out, she would literally very be visible. followed on the right. streets right. Uh, by religious police with you know loud hailers. So it was terrible. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And uh, so, um, yeah, we just stayed there one year and that was enough. In May of 2013, the Santa Rosa Press Democrat presented the serialized mystery Sonoma Square's Red Harvest. Branded as 14 Writers, One Thriller, this was the second season of popular mystery stories written in sequential chapters by different local writers, and it picked up where the PD's previous serialized mystery left off. In this clip, we hear the voices of the project editor, Robert Digitale, Chapter 2 contributor, Dan Taylor, and Chapter 3 contributor, Frederick Wiesel. The candid interchange uncovers some deep, dark secrets of this mystery's origin story. So there we are in a different venue. Mm-hmm. We're in the big city, so to mm-hmm. speak. We're at the Cron, as they mm-hmm. call it in here. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I understand, Dan Taylor, that you did not, you hadn't read that chapter, but when you got your no. chance <laughs> to 
which is kind of funny because you start at the entrance of the Chronicle newsroom right on yours. So right. you must have gotten some clues from this man on my right. You know, Robert, Robert gave me um, an outline, a very slim, compact outline of what I needed to accomplish in that, in that chapter. And, mm-hmm. and then that was it. I just uh, I, I took a I, I printed out the entire first season as as Robert calls it and right. read it in, in an hour or two, and then I I uh, wrote several drafts over a period of a few weeks at home. Mm-hmm. And this was your first, you told me, uh, fiction in since college. Yeah, it was my first published fiction okay. ever. We're <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, soon to be published. Yeah, yeah I, right. I studied I studied every writing class I could get when I was in journalism school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and and I've written for fun with my son. And, and never tried to publish it. I haven't even freelanced very much. I, I've been on staff at a newspaper one, one place or another since I was 19. So, Well, as they tell you, write what you know, and the description of the newsroom at the Chronicle is right spot on. Because my father-in-law was the uh, Sunday editor for the Chronicle Examiner combination for years and years. And you'd go in, and there were the desks, you know, with co- littered, except for his, which had to be cleared because he was always laying out the, you know, the 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 Sunday front pages and stuff like that. Um, so tell us more about your chapter. I mean, the people have read it now, so I'm not giving anything away here. Well, I'm relieved to hear you say that my description of the Cron newsroom is accurate because I've never been there. Ah, well. <laughs> but I've been in a lot of newsrooms. And I did look online and and, and check that they had. Yeah, the, the silly thing is they put these white Formica desks in. Mm-hmm. And if you can imagine what, you know, with the old newsprint, how quickly those became gray. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's something dingy about a newsroom, even right after they remodel. Right. Well, I started this. Uh, I thought my strength was having done so many interviews, and so I started by writing the dialogue. Right. And uh, and I also have covered theater for decades, so I felt comfortable with that. And then mm-hmm. I let that sit for a while, and mm-hmm. then went back and rewrote it a couple of times. But it actually, uh, I took most of my inspiration from um, season one the chapters by Heather Chavez on the copy desk. Mm-hmm. Copy editors are so invisible. They don't have bylines. People don't know they're there. She wrote a couple of really good pieces, and she did most of the characterization of Sandy and her friend Abby. Right. And I just felt there was a rhythm to their banter and the way they kidded each other and their nicknames for each other. And mm-hmm. It was really comfortable. Mm-hmm. It was really pretty easy to get into it. So you approached it as a play, sort of. Yeah, I did. You know, yeah. I did it as a as a dialogue, and then I, then I went back and rewrote some of the conversation so it wouldn't be too clunky. Mm-hmm. And, and the title Fear Factor, why why that for the chapter? I actually don't know. <laughs> that's, that came from Robert, too. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. But he does have an important thing to set up, and it ties into what Chrissy's going to do, because <clears throat> in his chapter, he's talking about Sandra's moved on to the big city, but she's still haunted by what's gone on before yes. and what's going to happen next. And what's going to happen next is in Chapter 3, Frederick. Yes. You, again, did you, you just had some notes from Robert. You had not read the previous two chapters? Uh, I think when I started this, I hadn't read anything. I think ah. I was actually the first chapter to be finished. But Robert and I had been meeting, I don't know, four or five times and brainstorming ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, we kind of uh, blocked out the, the plot and figured out what was going to happen. And because I had come up with the idea of home invasion robberies, uh, Robert said, well, why don't you write that chapter? Which uh, you entitled Home Invasion. Home invasion. What an original idea. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> so what I did was I had noticed all these articles in the Press Democrat about home invasion. So I downloaded all those stories and read them carefully and tried to see what happened in them 
and use those kind of details to write this this chapter. Mm-hmm. And we also decided, I think, that we would have the, the actual robbery and what would happen in the robbery, and we'd also have them come back to where they lived. Um, Robert came up with this picture of a closet filled with cash, mm-hmm. and I liked that. I thought that was a, a striking image. So we have the, the robbers take the marijuana and the money and, and then come back to their house, and, and it's the first time you see this closet of cash. Um, and I think we went back and forth a couple times, but it's almost all dialogue, and um, it's really just getting them into the house, getting the money, and getting out again. Well, it's interesting in there. You, I think this is their seventh robbery, and they're planning to do ten. So why yes. that? those magical numbers? What is the motivation for them? Um, there's nothing magic about those numbers. We just, I just wanted to show them as experience that they had been doing this for a while. Um, I'm a big fan of Elmore Leonard, a mm-hmm. crime writer. Mm-hmm. And I, his, his um, criminals seem almost like blue-collar workers. They, they do their work, and, and there's not a lot of drama about it. And I wanted to portray them that way. So I, I thought if they had some routine, I thought also I'd enter the, the time element. We need to get in and get out quickly. Right. That that would give some drama to the chapter. Yeah, well, the out of drama, of course, comes in that they'll, they've cased the place and think they know it back and forwards and forwards that there's a surprise that occurs. Which, should we give that away, Chapter 3? It's already out there. It's already out there. All right. And the other man appears. And interesting, that wasn't something I planned. I actually <laughs> – I wrote the chapter, and as I was writing it, I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if uh, something unexpected happened and – if there was a, a death, and I, I think Robert and I talked about how a homicide would draw more attention from the, the authorities. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure they were already working on it, but with a homicide, it would get more attention. Right. And added that. And then I also wanted to add um, the shooter's reaction because I thought it would give him a little more humanity. After I saw a graphic novelist, Maya Kobabe, do a presentation at the Rohnert Park Library, I invited her to be on the show, and she suggested her talented colleague Trinidad Escobar join her. The challenge for presenting visually rich material on the radio is how to let listeners see what is on the pages. To my surprise, this conversation about Trinidad's work veers off in a very personal direction in the middle of a Philippines typhoon. You'll like this, too, because you've seen this, right? I have. I love this scene. Yes. Thank you. And, and you'll notice that the, the lines are not straight on the side of the, of the illustration. They move like the movement of the yeah, water. Yeah, all of the panel borders and also the edges of the narration boxes are wavy, right. which is very appropriate for a, a stormy underwater scene. Stormy underwater scene. And also, this, even though it's, it's rectangular, and, and one of the things that Manja does is it kind of does these weird lopsided triangular octagonal, yes. you know what I mean, shapes that are stuck in a page. And then you have to follow it, what we call backwards, because mm-hmm. it goes from right to left. And... Um, you sort of do that here. See if I can scale up. See what I'm trying to show? You've got boxes within boxes and, mm-hmm. and panels. 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 That's a whole panels. panels. <laughs> They're called panels. Sorry. Yes. Right. I'm going <laughs> to have to write all these things down. And then there at the bottom of the panel, very bottom of the panel, there are two paws of some kind of creature. Is it a cat? Yes. There's a well. There's a a dog that a you dog. see later in the scene, um, but uh, it's a part of the story. My mother in the Philippines, um, she loves animals, 
and uh, it's a it's a major part of the main character's identity story of, of coming to terms with her identity um, when she's uh, growing up in America in her adoptive family. Mm-hmm. She loves animals, doesn't know where that comes from. No one else in her family cares about animals. Um, No one wants any pets, but she's collecting pets all the time um, and saving them, taking them to shelters. And then when she returns to the Philippines to be with her adoptive or her birth mother, she opens the gate and 10 dogs run up to her. Um, So in this scene, it's a flashback. And her mother had been taking care of animals and some of the animals die in the typhoon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, it's a pretty big cataclysmic event, right? right? Not just animals die, but people die as Mm -hmm. well. Uh, Where to go with this? Well, we're we're out of the uh, stone building. Uh, She's very pregnant. The ground is littered with the detritus of the receding waves, Uh, trees and fish and dead animals and trees, and um, certainly not a place that you would pick to bear a child. Right. Right. Now, the character in this is named, I'm trying to remember what she's called. She isn't, it's um, Nikki Escobar. Yes. But is there any similarity between Nikki's story and yours? Yes. Um, it is my story. <laughs> Nikki is the name that I was given when I was adopted. Mm-hmm. So my birth name is Trinidad. And um, when I was um, adopted, uh, by a Filipino American family, they changed my name to Nicole ah. to fit paperwork for um, a previous adoption that didn't work out. There was two, but that had already been approved. Mm-hmm. Right. Already been approved. So, uh, my parents had adopted a child named um, Nicole, and she died. They had already almost completed the paperwork. So then they went and looked for another child and named her Nicole, and then the mother took her back last minute. And then wow. they found me, and yes. they were like, okay, we have to call her Nicole because of the paperwork, but at home we'll privately call her Nikki so that she doesn't have bad luck. And um, so Nikki is the name of the character until uh, she gets to the Philippines when she questions why she's going by the name Nikki if it's associated with this bad past or right. this cursed right. past. Two deaths, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Um well, let's say that as one grew up and discovered all these different intricate, um, can I use the word fate, that intervened, you know, in something you had no control over, you must have had some reactions. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I had some reactions. Um, well, I, I, I grew up knowing I was adopted. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my adoptive parents told me I was adopted when I was three years old, and I, I pretty much understood. Um, but as they taught me a little bit more of my history as years went on, as I got older, um, I began to feel like I didn't know who I was. So they would say, your name's not actually Nikki. It's 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 Trinidad. Oh, you're not actually this. You're this. Oh, you don't actually speak Tagalog. Your family spoke a different language. It just went on and on, and I felt lost. Because you were from Bataan. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So totally different. And my, my family in the Philippines is originally from Samar, which is on the other side mm-hmm. of the Philippines. And they speak a very distinct language called Warai Warai. And almost no one in America speaks it. I can't learn it because I have no friends who speak it. Oh. Um, it's really difficult. Um, so it made me feel really um, lost. So when I decided to be with my family and, and spend time and learn from them, my world just completely flipped. This is your birth family. 
Uh, yeah, when I went back right. to see my birth family, everything just flipped, and I um, needed to make a book about it to right. remind myself <laughs> all the things that I'd learned. Wow. From my perspective as Trinidad's classmate, um, I met Trinidad in 2013, and she was working on what sounded like a very exciting also, sort of semi-memoir sort of, yeah. um, um, graphic novel called Rooster House, mm-hmm. which you hope to also someday make. Yeah. Um, so she had this beautiful character designs and all of this work, you know, like half the script written. Um, and then she went on this trip over winter break, was it, back to mm-hmm. your birth family? Mm-hmm. And we saw these pictures and these just floods of family and emotions and these smiles and people with her nose and people <laughs> with her with her eyes um, that we'd never seen before, you know, on Facebook and all the right, social media. Right. And she came home and she's like. Hi, spring semester. So um, I'm changing my thesis. <laughs> and so it was, we're halfway through our two-year master's program at yes. this point. And most people, you know, you've put so much work in already. And she comes and she's like, so I wrote another book. Thanks for joining us for Word by Word's 10-year retrospective. An hour is too short a period of time to share all the great conversations with writers. So I suggest you Google Word by Word, KRCB, and browse the nearly 50 podcasts of past shows available at sites like krcb.org, iTunes, npr.org, and mixcloud.com. You have been listening to a special word-by-word conversations with writers retrospective look back at the last 10 years with host Gil Manser on North Bay Public Media KRCB-FM. In the first half hour, we heard clips from shows featuring Greg Saris and Gene Hegland, Michael Larson and Elizabeth Pomata, Margaret Cesare Thompson, Megan McDonald, and Terry Sloat. This was followed by clips from shows with the award-winning best-selling author T.C. Boyle, Irishman Owen Koffler, who wrote an immensely popular YA mystery series about the brilliant teenage master criminal Artemis Fowl, three writers who contributed chapters to the Press Democrat's serialized Sonoma Square's Red Harvest Mystery, and graphic novelist Maya Kobabe and Trinidad Escobar. Today's studio engineer is Anthony Garcia. Our station manager is Sean Knight. Our podcast archivist is Mark Prell. Our radio coordinator is Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and your continuing word-by-word host is me, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for the next word-by-word show from 4 to 5 on Sunday, July 9th, when our guest is the New York Times bestselling author Jane Green with her just-released novel, The Sunshine Sisters. Until then, here's a wise bit of folk wisdom from Irish writer Owen Colfer. Thankfully, the rest of the world assumed that the Irish were crazy a theory that the Irish themselves did nothing to debunk. They had somehow got it into their heads that each fairy lugged around a pot of gold with him wherever he went. While it was true that no human being had ever taken a chunk of it yet, this didn't stop the Irish population in general from skulking around rainbows, hoping to win the supernatural lottery.